You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I'm confident that some of you grew up in Christian churches and families, probably a lot like I did. I grew up in a church where my father was the pastor, and I don't ever remember a time of not being in church, and I don't remember a time of not wanting in some way to know God, until, oddly enough, my second year at a Christian college. And suddenly I found myself with doubts that I hadn't had before and couldn't really explain. And I'm guessing that some of you may be there too. Some of you, I'm sure, also came to Asbury from very different backgrounds. And sometimes, frankly, might find yourself wondering, what the heck is going on with all this religious stuff all the time? Well, today, I'm well aware that sometimes we make things really complicated. And today, it's just a wonderful joy to be able to talk about just what's at the heart of the Christian faith, what matters most about Christianity. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. What does he mean? Well, he's talking about himself, and he's talking about his own identity, and he's talking about his own mission, and he's talking about what he has done and will do in the world, and he's pointing us ahead to what he will do ultimately. He's talking about the resurrection of himself from death. Different scholars have looked at these things for years. My own friend Bill Craig has laid this out in a particular way. Here's one way to think about it. We can think in terms of some basic facts of the matter. These are facts which are hardly disputed and in most cases widely accepted and understood. The first fact is this. Jesus died and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. This point enjoys the testimony of early sources and independent sources. Notably, there are no competing burial stories. There are no, there's no competition for this about what happened, no serious competition as about what happened to Jesus. The fact that he was in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb turns out to be significant. Why? Because it's, it's a specific person of a specific family who owns a specific part of this place. It's also someone who was not someone who was known to him, someone who was already an ally. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The second fact is that on the Sunday after Jesus died, his tomb was discovered to be empty. Again, believers and unbelievers and a whole bunch of people dispute about how we make sense of that, but the basic affirmation is not one that's in dispute. His tomb was discovered without him in it. Here we have the earliest eyewitnesses are women, which makes it highly unlikely that this was ever intended to be a kind of conspiracy theory. If it was, it was one of the most inept conspiracy theories of all time. Why? 
because the women at the time didn't really have a full legal voice as eyewitnesses. That's not the way you would concoct a story. Moreover, the earliest counter-arguments from all the enemies of Jesus actually presuppose that the tomb is empty. In other words, people accept that it is and then work to offer explanations to account for that. The third fact, in the days immediately following Jesus' burial, people reported seeing Jesus alive. Again, this is not so much in dispute. How we make sense of that is very much in dispute. But the, the bare fact itself isn't so much. People reported seeing Jesus alive. The fourth fact, the original disciples of Jesus suddenly and sincerely came to believe that he really was alive. And this is evident both in their witness, their testimonies, but also in the transformation of their behavior, in their changed lives, in the fact that they were willing to suffer, in some cases to suffer deep persecution, in some cases to suffer actual martyrdom. These basic points are not much in dispute. What we make of them certainly is. And different theories have arisen over the years. One is what is sometimes called the swoon theory. That is, is that Jesus certainly was, was injured and he passed out, he fainted. People assumed he was dead. They laid him in this cold tomb, laying on the cold earth, he revived, he regained strength, he overpowered his guards and, and escaped. This is hardly plausible because if anyone really knew how to kill people, it would be Roman executioners that was their job. They were known to be really good at it. And furthermore, modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence comes down very clearly on the side that there's no way he would have lived. A recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association says that modern medical interpretation of the historical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead when taken from the cross. There are, by some people's count, at least nine arguments against the swoon theory. Other people have said, well, this probably is best explained as a conspiracy. Who doesn't love a good conspiracy theory, right? That is, the disciples stole his body and then made up this story so that they would save face. But again, by some people's account, there are at least seven good arguments against this. If that were true, it wouldn't explain the appearances where people who were not expecting to see him and people who actually had avowed themselves as enemies of him came to see him later. It isn't at all probable knowing what we know about the disciples. And again, there's this pesky testimony of the women. Some people have said, well, maybe the disciples were under such duress and in such a high stress environment and undergoing so much PTSD that they began to hallucinate. And so they thought they saw Jesus, but didn't. Again, by some counts, there are 14 or so good arguments against this. But here's a couple of considerations. One is there's just too many of these, and they're too varied. They occur to one person, to multiple people. They occur to huge groups of people, and they're not expected. And indeed, they're not even initially believed. Some people then say, well, this sounds must just be a legend or a myth, and it can be compared to other le legends and myths of dying and rising deities and the like in the ancient world. But when we compare what happens with Jesus with those other accounts, we see that what happens with Jesus comes far too quickly. Myths and legends develop over centuries. 
at least decades. But this happens with Jesus within days. Furthermore, it's just the wrong genre. This, the gospel accounts don't look like myth. They bail the telltale signs of eyewitness accounts. The different gospel accounts have obscure details. It just doesn't look like myth. Or, and here's the really astounding option, but it's the one that makes sense of the evidence when put together. It's that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's that this actually happened. Now, the longer I've looked at this over the years, the more I've become convinced that no, there is not sort of mathematically certain truth uh, of, of his resurrection. No, of course, it's not like two plus two equals four. No, of course not. But the longer I've looked at this, the more convinced I've become that the most surprising account is the one that makes the most sense. It's that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's doing is he's showing us what that means, not just as a historical event that happened in a, in a cave in Palestine 2,000 years ago. He's talking about what it means for those who come to be joined in union with him through faith. He's talking about this thing the New Testament talks a lot about called eternal life. And here's why it matters for us. Every one of you, everyone here, will go to a funeral or a memorial service. Everyone here, every one of you, you're going to say goodbye to someone you care about. Everyone here will feel this gaping hole in your heart. Everyone here will wonder, how am I going to make it through tomorrow? How am I gonna make it through the rest of today without this person I've loved? Indeed, my guess is that many of you have already been in such a place. You already know what I'm talking about. Every one of you, every one of us, we will all be at a funeral. Indeed, everyone will go to your own funeral. And at every funeral, there is an unwanted presence that dominates, it's death. And death mocks us, it taunts us, it laughs at us, it wrecks us. At every funeral, death screams, I win, I win every time. All the goodness and beauty and joy of your life is gone. All the delight you had in him or her is gone. All the laughter, all the love you shared with that person, it's gone. I win every time, I win. And it, it seems like death is right. It really seems like all that goodness is just sucked out. It seems like all that life and love and laughter is gone and gone forever. It certainly seems like death wins. And this is where the resurrection of Christ makes all the difference in the world. Because the New Testament teaches us that the good news is that Christ was raised from the dead. And that includes the good news that all those who are joined in union with Christ will also be raised from death. This is why St. Paul, who was once an enemy of Jesus, a sworn avowed enemy, encounters the resurrected Christ and then says these words, this perishable body must put on imperishability. This mortal body will put on immortality. And he, Paul says, when this happens, 
the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Where is it now? Thanks be to God, Paul says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life, he says, and he offers that life to us. The New Testament, as I said, talks about a lot about eternal life, but it talks a lot about eternal life as something that's present, as something that's already here, as something we have now. Jesus says, I've come as the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I've come to give you the American dream. I haven't come to give you a nice car, good health, a gorgeous spouse with 2.4, well-adjusted and well-behaved kids. He doesn't say, I've come to give you a comfortable McMansion or comfortable eco-friendly house or whatever you want. He doesn't come as an accessory to the American dream. He doesn't come as an accessory to anything. He comes as Lord of life. And he comes to give that life away for others. And then he calls those of us who are joined in union with him to also share that life. And as his life is a life given for others, he calls us to share that life and to give our lives for others. He invites us, he implores us to take up our crosses and follow him. He invites us to live in the glorious light of this resurrection hope, and because of that, then, in the power of his life. He calls us to spread the good news. He calls us to share the gospel. He calls us to fight oppression. He calls us to oppose injustice wherever we find it. He calls us, all of us, no matter our race or ethnicity or class or sex or abilities, no matter our personal history, all of us. He calls all of us to hate what he hates, to love what he loves. He calls all of us to love who he loves. And yes, I know, and I know we all know, we live in a world where it looks like sin and hatred and injustice and oppression scream at us every day. Like death at a funeral, sin and oppression and injustice say, look at us. Look at Ferguson. Look at Louisville. Look at Minneapolis. Look at Kenosha. Look at Kiev. See, there's nothing you can do. We win. We win every time. But because we belong to the one who has defeated sin and death, we do not have to live paralyzed by our fear. Because of the resurrection, we do not have to be captive to hatred. Because Christ has already decisively conquered death and the sin that leads to death, that sin is also facing judgment and defeat by Christ. Jesus did not say, I've come to accessorize your American dream. He did say, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. He has come to say, I will give you my life. My own will shall become yours. He has come to call us to live the fullness of his life. And that means standing for what's right, standing against what's wrong, giving of ourselves. And when sin and injustice and oppression scream at us from every corner, when they say, we win every time, 
we say we're with Christ. When death taunts us and screams at us and says, I win every time, we say we're with him. And we say thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I have a friend whose name is or was Yukio. Yukio was a teenager during World War II. He was a Japanese teenager. He was bright and he was athletically gifted. And so he was selected for the honor as a 13-year-old boy of being a kamikaze pilot for the Japanese Imperial Army. He trained how to fly but not how to land. His unit was on call when the war ended. He told me once he almost despaired of his life at that point because he thought there's nothing else to live for. But instead of going the darker route and taking his own life, he decided that he would just live for whatever was in front of him and live all the way. He became a member of the Yakuza, which is the Japanese mafia. He was a gang member and a pimp. In his work as a pimp with the American soldiers, he learned English. And one day while he was walking down a street in Tokyo, he heard strange sounds coming from the corner ahead. He walked forward and he saw this large canvas tent. He heard strange music and strange English words. And he went inside and heard someone preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said when he went in, he had no idea what was going on. And when he came out, all he knew was he wanted to belong to Jesus. He felt later called to Christian ministry. He came to the United States, he studied, he became a professor of Hebrew. And in the mid-90s, he told me this story as I was taking Hebrew with him. When he told me that he was a kamikaze pilot, at first I was skeptical, and then I responded, well, you clearly weren't a very good one. That's when he told, I think that's when he told me he was also a third degree black belt. So I decided I would chill out on, the, on, on making fun of him. His story was amazing and dramatic. And because of that, he was often asked to share it in various churches. One day, he visited a church in the American South and stood up and told his story. And at the conclusion of the service, a man stood up in the back and began to walk with a pronounced limp toward the front. When he did, several other people in the church stood up and began also to move toward the front. The older man with the bad limp walked to the front, stepped up on the platform, and walked across to the pulpit. A hush fell over the place because they understood that the man who had just come was a World War II veteran. And he stepped forward and he said, all my adult life I have walked with this limp because of what a kamikaze pilot did in the Pacific. And all my life I have longed for the day when I could meet a Japanese kamikaze pilot and strangle the life out of him. And he said, but today I realize that we are brothers. And he reached forward, not to strangle the life, but in an embrace of love. I don't need to tell you what you already know. We live in a world that is ripped by hatred. We live in a world in which it looks like sin and hatred and oppression and injustice win. We live in a world where it looks like they win every time. We live in a world in which everyone goes to a funeral, eventually their own. And we do so in the glorious hope that we belong to the one who has defeated sin, death, and the devil and calls us to share his life and to give his love. 
As I said, I'm sure that some of you have come to Asbury wondering, what in the world are these people doing? Why do they care about these things? We care because this is life. We care because this is hope. And some of you may be struggling with doubts. I leave you with the words of a friend of C.S. Lewis, Sheldon Van Aken. He too wrestled with doubts. And he says this, there was a gap between the possible and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. And I continue to hang around the edge of this gap, this gap between the possible and the proved. It was a question of whether I were to accept him or reject. Oh my God. There was a gap behind me as well. Perhaps the leap to acceptance was a terrifying gamble, but what of the leap to rejection? There was only one thing to be done once I had seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it, and I flung myself over that gap toward Jesus. I invite you, if you have not crossed that gap, do not delay. If you see the world around you ripped with hatred, rife with oppression, come to Jesus. And if you see a world that is broken by death, come to Jesus. And if you've come to Jesus, then brothers and sisters, live with him. Live with the hope. Live in the power of his resurrection. Live with the courage to give yourself away. Because thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.